go ahead and get started. Welcome, everybody. Good to see you today. Uh, if this is your first time, especially, welcome. We're glad to have you. We do this every week. Um, the food is provided free by Ruth's. We ask that you just leave a donation. It goes straight to the ladies in the back and bring the food out and help us set up and clean up. And other than that, uh, we're glad you're here. And we record this video camera right here. As you can see, we record each week. And it goes up both video on YouTube and audio on the podcast via SoundCloud or iTunes. So you can catch weeks that you miss. And the goal is to eventually have an entire library of books of the Bible in 30-minute chunks that you can work your way through. And so speaking of working your way through, we are in Leviticus chapter 15. And we're halfway through the book. We're actually coming on. Next week will be the center point of the book. The focus of the book of Leviticus uh, kind of divides in half almost between chapters 1 through 15 and then chapters 17 through the end. And right in the middle is chapter 16. Chapter, chapter 16 is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So we're building up to the, the middle point or the peak, the summit of the book of Leviticus. And we're in the section, chapters 12 through 15 are the sections dealing with how Israel is to maintain ritual cleanliness or purity. Now, these, these regulations that we've been looking at for the past few weeks have to do with, <clears throat> with, with community integrity, with bodily integrity, and in the literal sense, like integrity meaning wholeness or nothing lacking or nothing missing. So things that, that take away from the integrity of the body are seen as uh, making someone ceremonially unclean. What does it mean to be ceremonially unclean? Does it mean that God likes you less? No. Does it mean that you have sinned? No. What it means is if you are ceremonially unclean, it means you cannot enter the tabernacle. That's it. You can't go to church in a state of uncleanness in the Old Testament. You're excluded from the worship life of Israel that takes place in the tabernacle. So all of these regulations and all these things that we're seeing, we have to avoid the mistake that people have made many times in looking at this and saying, oh, well, the Bible teaches that someone that has a skin disease or a woman who's menstruating or a man who has some kind of discharge, that, that they're morally unclean. And that's not what scripture is teach, teaching. That's not what it's taught through the last few chapters. It's taught that they are ceremonially unclean, meaning they are not allowed to enter into the precinct of the sanctuary, the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle, remember, is a model of Mount Sinai. It's a mini, miniature portable Mount Sinai. And it's the place where God dwells. And that's literally what the word means. Every time you see the word tabernacle, in the Hebrew Bible, it's a Hebrew word, mishkan, and it means literally dwelling. It's actually a participle, dwelling. So the dwelling of God is the tabernacle, the place where he dwells. The tabernacle, he, he dwelled atop Mount Sinai when he entered into the covenant with Israel, and then he made the covenant with Israel and basically gave them a means to symbolically represent Mount Sinai in their midst wherever they go. God would be dwelling, tabernacling in their presence, at the very center of their presence. You see, in the book of Numbers, Israel's camp is arranged in concentric circles around the tabernacle. So he is literally the focus of the nation. The tabernacle was the spot where heaven and earth met. It was a spot where God's actual tangible presence, his glory, 
that word sometimes used is glory, uh, dwell among his people. And so in all of this, this is all an object lesson. It's all preparing Israel for the ultimate goal, which is for God himself to dwell among his people, as he did in the beginning. What was lost in creation in the fall, in Genesis 3, was that, that intimacy between humanity and God, dwelling together. That was fractured. That was lost. And so all of Scripture is going to be God's plan to restore that dwelling. But he doesn't do it all at once. There's this huge plan, this huge meta-narrative that spans Genesis to Revelation that shows God <clears throat> working through history on a much bigger scale than we imagine to bring back all of creation into fellowship with himself. So things he's doing all the way back here in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus are, are prefiguring the ultimate thing that he's going to do one day when the new heavens and the new earth are brought into being. Jesus returns when the ultimate dwelling, that's what Revelation ends with, is it says, look, the dwelling of God is with his people. And that's what's so amazing about it. There's no more temple. There's no more tabernacle. If you read, I have a whole study on the book of Revelation. If you ever want to look through it or go through that book, it's amazing how much Genesis Exodus imagery is permeates the book of Revelation. And the goal of it is God dwelling with his people together. No more separation because of sin and, uh, and decay and death and all of these things. So in the meantime, we're still back here in about 1400 BC. And what God is doing is he's giving them object lessons. He's giving them as a society visuals and rituals that will create in them this almost subconscious understanding of who God is, what type of God he is. That he's not a God like the God of the ancient Near East peoples around them. He's not a God that's capricious. He's not a God that's arbitrary. He's not a God that's susceptible to these whims. He's not a God that can be manipulated by human behavior. He's not a God that's intimately linked to the forces of creation. He's over and above and outside of those forces of creation. They, they serve his will. He's not uh, beholden to any of them. So all of these lessons that Israel's learning through their covenant relationship with God, even down to uh, what his holiness means and the fact that he is a God who is antithetical to death. Death is the complete opposite of God in every way, shape, and form. God is the God of life. So things that have to do with life and death have powerful, symbolic, theological significance, and they're built into how this whole sanctuary system that Israel lives under is set up. So when you enter Leviticus, you're entering into a world of symbols and types and shadows that had meaning for them at the time, very real meaning for them at the time, but now through the flow of history and looking back through the lens of Jesus and the cross, they have even greater meaning for us today in terms of their richer symbolism and the theology. So we appreciate their understanding. We, 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 in order to appreciate the fullness of what Leviticus is doing, we have to first understand what it was saying to them. Then we view it in light of what happens in the new covenant with Jesus. And then that informs us today of the character, purpose, being, nature, all of that stuff of God. So last week we looked at, this is the final section of these rules about uh, of, of purity. And the last week we looked at the first, the section, chapter 15 is, is a chiasm, A, B, C, B, A is how it's set up. So it deals with, in order, it deals with uh, things that make a man unclean. Then it means, 
deals with normal sexual functions of a man. Then it deals with the sexual relationship of man and woman together. Then it deals with the normal sexual functions of woman. And then it deals with a woman with a, a disease that's unclean as well. So it kind of has this beautiful pattern that's clear in the text. Um, and it covers all aspects of human reproduction and sexuality. And the, we looked at last week in a very fun Bible study about how a man's semen, and the Hebrew word is seed, a man's seed is both holy and unclean at the same time. It's holy in the sense that God said he would bless the seed of Abraham. The whole meaning of Genesis and Exodus is bound up in his promise to the seed of Abraham. But on the everyday scale, the day-to-day -day life, there's nothing sacred about a man's seed. And this is the reason this is spelled out in scripture is because in the religions of the ancient Near East, especially the Canaanites, and the Egyptians, that was not the case. We talked about last week, you can go watch the video or listen to the podcast, but the Canaanite religion revolved around this, this, this sacredness of the male-female sex act and the idea of the seed and of everything from semen to menstruation and all of the fertility stuff that goes along with it and how the gods could be manipulated into blessing your fertility of your crops or of your family or of your land. So all of that was intricately bound up in worship that the Canaanites did. And what God is saying in this, God is, is very intentionally, he is separating sexual behavior and sexual identity and sexual states of being. He's completely separating it from what goes on in the tabernacle. And that's the key to understanding this chapter is God, the God who invented sex, the God who first command he gave Adam and Eve was go have lots of sex. The God who has a whole Bible, book in the Bible that celebrates the pleasure of sex, no mention of reproduction at all, just flat out pleasure of sex in the Song of Solomon. So God is very much pro-sex in the Bible, very much. It's his idea, it's his thing, it's, it's almost sacramental in its nature. However, at the same time, and paradoxically, God demands in the Old Testament that, that the sexual act have nothing to do with what goes on in the tabernacle. And this is mind-boggling for people in the ancient Near East and even cultures today. You know, I go to India every year and there's, you can see, like India, is, it's an interesting country because it's very, there's a lot of propriety in India. Like, like you're not allowed actresses in Bollywood, they don't kiss on camera. Like you don't see couples kiss in Bollywood movies. They'll hug, they'll come close, and then they'll turn away, and then they'll all dance for some reason. But they don't kiss. You don't see that in Indian cinema. You don't see it on you know, TV shows. Where it, it's a very, some would say it's repressed, but it's really not about repression because you go into a Hindu temple, or you look at ancient Hindu writings and sculptures and artwork, and it is the most pornographic stuff you'll ever see. I mean, the entire, there's entire temples built around, this is the phallus of the gods, and this is the female genitalia of the goddess. And when they come together, heaven and earth come together, and all of these, and you've heard of the Kama Sutra, right? That's all from that same region. So it's this weird uh, cultural thing where it's, it's, sex is interwoven into the religious aspects, but it's not at all in the popular aspects. It's the completely opposite case here in America. Right? Here in America, sex is everywhere except church. You don't talk about sex in church. 
You don't talk about, you use euphemisms, you use other terms, you don't read this chapter in the youth group, definitely. Um, you just don't, you don't talk about it. But yet, you watch a commercial for toothpaste, and it's going to have sexual innuendo in it. You watch any sitcom on primetime television, and they're going to be single adults sleeping with each other. It's just part of the culture. So it's this weird thing that, that cultures have in terms of how they view sex, and its relationship with the divine, and its relationship with the everyday. What we see in, Gen or in Leviticus 15 is God says, <clears throat> sex is actually something that makes you ceremonially unclean from entering my tabernacle. But at the same time, it is the mandate and it is the blessing that I've given to humanity. So it's a tension that, that biblical faith and the and ancient Israelites had to hold was that sex is a good gift from God and it's to be honored and it's to be enjoyed and it's to be praised, but it's not related to worship. It does not play a part in the worship service. In fact, even the priests in Israel, we've seen in uh, Exodus, and we'll see it again later in Numbers, they talk about the priests have to wear, like, underwear. The priests have to wear undergarments because when they go up the steps of the altar, they don't even, God says, they doesn't want their nakedness to be seen. Why? Well, because when you go to the high places in Canaanite religions, there's a whole lot of nakedness. And more than nakedness, there's a whole lot of sex. Ritual prostitutes in Canaanite religion were called Kedashim, which literally means the sacred ones or the holy ones. And so there's this whole world of sexual idolatry, and God is calling Israel into that culture and to be distinct from that culture. And so all of these things that have to do with, with, with you know, beliefs about the reproductive organs and beliefs about the sex act and beliefs about menstruation and beliefs about all of these things. God is in this chapter. He's kind of telling Israel, you're not going to follow those ways. This is what you're going to do. And this is going to ingrain in you over the generations my, how I view the entire world, including male-female intimacy. So we looked last week, the first half of this chapter, which deals with everything from men with possibly sexually transmitted diseases or possibly stuff like good old hemorrhoids and diarrhea and all that fun stuff, all the way down to every time a man has an orgasm, every time any seed leaves his body, that it makes him ceremonially unclean. It doesn't make him morally unclean, it just makes him ceremonially unclean. And then that's chapter 15, verse 16. And it says, when a man has an omission of seed or semen in your Bibles, he must bathe his whole body with water. He will be unclean till evening. Any clothing or leather that has semen on it must be washed with water and will be unclean till evening. That's it. There's no sacrifices. There's no atonement because it doesn't make you, you haven't committed anything that defiles. It's just ceremonially unclean. And then the hinge, the, the middle part of this whole chapter, uh, verse 18, deals with man and woman. When a man lies with a woman, and there's a mission of semen. Both must bathe with water, and they will be unclean till the evening. You have sex, you take a bath, you take a shower, you wash, you clean up, and then tomorrow you can go to the temple. Not today. Sex and temple worship are separate. They're to be kept separate. They're not ever to be confused. Because in every culture around Israel, they were confused heavily. So God's delineating here. Then it goes on to talk about women. It says, when a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days. Anyone who touches her will be unclean to leave me. 
Anything, and this parallels the previous section in this chapter. Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Whoever touches her bed must wash his clothes and bathe with water. He will be unclean till evening. Whoever touches anything she sits on must wash his clothes, bathe with water, and he will be unclean till evening. Whether it's the bed or anything she was sitting on, when anyone touches it, he will be unclean till evening. If a man lies with her and her monthly flow touches him, <laughs> that's another one of those Bible verses you don't see on Hallmark cards. Uh, if a man lies with her and her monthly flow touches him, he will be unclean for seven days. Any bed he lies on will be unclean. So in this section, the idea is the natural bodily biology of woman, which is monthly period flow, is makes you ceremonially unclean. Whether it's the woman herself, whether it's what she touches, whether it's a man who comes in contact. It parallels the same thing with a man with an admission of semen earlier. It's the same thing. He becomes unclean. Anyone who touches him becomes unclean. So it's this way of keeping, of, of quarantining the sexual intimacy that goes on, that should go on in the home, quarantining that from what goes on in the tabernacle. Separation. And it's a strong separation. It's a clear separation. And there's a period of time because God is ingraining. Remember, it's an object lesson. It's a children's sermon type approach where you show a little something and that represents something bigger, but it's children who can grasp it that way. And then when they grow up, they're like, oh, that's what that was about. Uh, check the video two weeks ago. We talked about that. It's the same thing. He's doing that for Israel. So he's teaching them about himself and his holiness and his uh, how they are going to be in the midst of this sexually debauched culture into which he's calling. Then, paralleling the first part of chapter 15, it goes, uh, goes on to talk about non-regular uh, things that impugn the integrity of a woman. So for a man, it was if he has, and it said, an admission. And we talked about what that could mean. It could mean some type of disease, some type of discharge, some type of something funky going on downstairs, basically. If a man's got that going on, then that's gonna render him in one way. Well, now it's gonna deal with a woman. Equal rights here. So it's going to talk about if a woman, if her period is not just the regular monthly normal type, but if there is a um, uh, some type of illness, some type of disease, some type of condition that, that symbolizes uh, decay or death or, or lack of integrity, lack of wholeness, lack of completeness, uh, you know, everything that echoes from the previous chapters about skin diseases and things like that. That's what we come to now in this section at the end. It says, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, her discharge will continues will be unclean, uh, as in her bed during the monthly period. Anything she sits on will be unclean, as during her period. Whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe in water. He will be unclean till evening. When she is cleansed from her discharge, in other words, when it's healed, when it's over, when it runs its course, she must count off seven days, after that, she will be ceremonially clean. So on the eighth day, she must take two doves or two young pigeons, bring them to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest is to sacrifice one for a sin or purification offering, and the other for a whole burnt offering. In this way, he will make atonement for her before the Lord for the uncleanness of her discharge. So that's the penalty. That's the, I mean, that's it. Is, is your, your, when, when, you, when a disease has come and gone, when you've been healed from it, then you go back and you re-enter into the worshiping community of Israel. And you take a small sacrifice, not, not the normal sacrifice, which are sheep, goats, bulls, rams. This is small, two pigeons, two doves. You take those, you present them to the priest. One is sacrificed for the purification offering, 
That's the offering from unintentional sin or, or purifying from defilement. And that's offered whenever there's disease and things like that. And then one for the burnt offering. And that's the kind of entering back into fellowship offering. Rededicating yourself to the Lord. Uh, Re-entering into the community of Israel and the sacrificial system. And all of that. And that's it. That's, that's what goes on. And here's the purpose. This is verse 31. This is the key to this whole chapter. After he says this, he says, You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, which is among them. That's the key. That's what God is concerned about in this chapter, in this whole section, chapters 12 through this one. The whole section. God's holiness and his purity are overwhelming. They are powerful. They are strong. And sin coming into contact with the holy is, is destroyed. It's consumed. It's, it's blasted away. And so what God is doing is he is providing the means by which people who are fallen and who are sinful can enter into his presence in a way that doesn't destroy them. He's giving them a, you know, you know if you watch people that uh, study volcanoes, like on National Geographic, where you see the people study volcanoes, and they put on those, those like, it looks like tinfoil, but they're those heat-resistant suits, and they're huge and bulky, and they go, and they can still only get like a few feet from the lava flow, just enough to get a sample and then get back. Because if they approach the lava flow without that suit, they would burn up. They would be roasted. That's a much better image of the purity and holiness of God than anything about not smoking, not cussing, not drinking, not dancing. The holiness of God is that, think of it as that lava flow, as that consuming fire, that blast furnace. And the sacrificial system and the whole covenant setup is that suit, that, that, that way of putting on a fireproof suit so that you can approach and come near to God. Not fully. God still resides in the Holy of Holies, and not everybody can go in the Holy of Holies. Only once, one person, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, which is next chapter, can do that. But this is so that the people of Israel can get close to the source of that holiness, in the presence, in the precincts of the tabernacle. The priest is an even greater degree of danger, and so they have an even greater degree of purity than they have to maintain. For the people, they're not getting as close as the priests. They're getting a step away, so the purity they maintain isn't quite as all-encompassing. But the whole ultimate goal of this is because the, even the people are to the outside world what the priests are to the people of Israel. The people of Israel are a nation, a kingdom of priests. They are to be the mediator between God and the nations who don't know God. So all of this is big picture stuff of what God's trying to do, trying to create with his people through these sacrificial rituals. So Leviticus chapters 12 through 15, they aren't about hygiene, although they do have a lot to do with things that we would consider hygienic. They aren't about disease control, although they do have some practices that would cut down on the spread of diseases in Israel. They aren't about moral purity. They aren't about sinning and unrighteousness and things like that. Although some of the things do touch on unrighteousness and some of the things that people could become defiled by are sinful, but not all of them. Chapters 12 through 15 are about 
ritual purity for people who are using this thing that God has given them that he spent the first 11 chapters showing, which is the tabernacle. Leviticus, remember, it's the instruction manual. It's the user manual for the tabernacle. Like you, you pop open the glove compartment in your car and there's a user's manual for your car. So this would be the equivalent of the tabernacle. You open the Ark of the Covenant and one of the, no, that's not in there actually. You open the Ark of the Covenant and your face melts off as we saw in Indiana Jones. Um, but you get the idea. Leviticus is the, is the equivalent of that. It is the here Israel, not priests, because it doesn't say, hey Moses, just tell Aaron and keep it secret from all the people. No, no. Tell the people of Israel these are the regulations. There were no secret things that only the priests knew that had to do with, with the covenant. It was all common knowledge for everyone. It was written down. So priests and layperson alike knew what was going on. It was teaching them about the holiness of God from, from in every aspect of their life, from the things they ate to the diseases on their skin to the diseases on the walls of their house we talked about to you know ritual impurities to theirs what happens in the bedroom all of it resonates in the kingdom of God there's no area of life that's not holy in some regard or that doesn't have contact with the holy so that every aspect of Israel's life was to be different from the surrounding nations they were to be a unique people. And that's what transcends the Old Covenant into the New Covenant, is the calling. So the way Israel was unique in the Old Covenant was through the rituals and the laws and the prescriptions and the tabernacle and the ceremonies. Those were the things that God gave Israel in the first millennium B.C. and second millennium B.C. He gave those to Israel for them to be holy in their setting. All of it pointed towards the coming of Messiah, who would then be... Emmanuel, which literally means God with us, who would become flesh and dwell among his people, as John says in John 1, and that word dwell is the word tabernacle. So all of it, Jesus would come on the scene, and Jesus would bring that era of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, to its full conclusion. He wouldn't abolish it. He would complete it. Huge difference. Once he completed it, then he would inaugurate through his own self-sacrifice, through his own purity and holiness, through his own covenant keeping, he would inaugurate the new covenant. And the new covenant would do for the world what the old covenant was to do, which is to bring and spread knowledge of God throughout the world. And it would do what the old covenant did in calling the holy people of Israel. It was the same people, the seed of Abraham. It was continuous with the old covenant. But... The identity of that people of Israel was now, instead of being centered around the tabernacle and what goes on in the tabernacle, it was centered around the Messiah who said, my body is the temple and what goes on around the Messiah. So now no longer did it, did it mean that to be part of that community, you had to be one of the tribes of Israel or you had to do an elaborate ritual where you entered into and become one of the tribes of Israel through conversion. It meant you entered into Messiah. You entered into Jesus. You entered into the community, and it was marked off not by circumcision done with human hands, not by blood shed by wolves and goats in the tabernacle, but by circumcision of the heart and by the filling of the Holy Spirit rather than the washing of water. And so that 
constituted the new people of God. But the purpose, and that's where we live, that's, that's what we're in, that era. But the purpose is the same. To, to radiate God's knowledge to the world that doesn't know Him. Same purpose, same goal. What it looks like in day-to-day -day life is different today. The dietary laws and the ceremonial celebrations and the tabernacle uh, duties didn't carry over. Those were part of the Mosaic Covenant. They have been brought to their completion in Jesus. So now we live in the New Covenant. But all of that stuff that, that defined Israel as holy back then spoke to and carried with it characteristics about who God is and what holiness is. So in the same way that they were holy in midst their culture, today the people of God are called to be holy in the midst of our cultures. And what that looks like in different cultures is it varies. And that's what the whole New Testament spells out. The whole New Testament is letters by apostles to churches or individuals in the world, in their communities, on how to be New Covenant Israel. That's the whole New Testament. Every letter, everything after the Gospels, that's all it is. And so that's where we live now. But <clears throat> if we don't have the understanding, the original covenant, if we don't understand what was going on there, if we don't understand the purpose of it and the theology and the symbolism, then we miss a lot of what we're called to in our setting today. So it ends, it says, these are the regulations for a man with his discharge, for anyone made unclean by an emission of seed, for a woman in her monthly period, for a man or a woman with a discharge, or for a man who lies with a woman in her ceremonial, in her ceremonial uncleanness. And that's it. It's the, the, the purity laws in Leviticus, or the purity regulations in 12 through 15, have started with what you eat, what goes into you, and they've ended with what goes out of you without getting too graphic. And it's covered everything in between. And so now we're ready for the next chapter, which is previewed by that little hinge verse right before this about the holiness of the tabernacle, how to keep it from being defiled, lest people die. Now, next week, chapter 16, we'll look at the ceremony, ceremony that was done once a year that would basically do for the tabernacle the equivalent of, remember at your sketch, Remember a sketch with the two knobs and it makes a drawing. So it would get all you know discombobulated and you'd mess up and it wouldn't look like what you want. What do you do? You shake it. You pick it up and just and then what's left? Clean slate. Next week, that's what y'all pull. That's what the Day of Atonement would do for the tabernacle and by extension for all of Israel itself. It would be the yearly etch a sketch shake ceremony. <laughs> or pick any other metaphor you want. That was just the first one popped into my head. So, come back next week. We'll look at Leviticus 16. It's 1 o'clock on the dot. We are done. Uh, have a great week, and hope to see you back here. Thanks.